Let's, uh, let's get into it. I, I've, I was going to say, I've told this story before. I've probably, probably all of my stories, I've told them before. Uh, I was in a block course for my doctorate in Melbourne. So it was in Melbourne for that one. Others were in Brisbane, others were in LA. So we're going all the way over to Melbourne for a block course, Everyday Spirituality. And uh, the introduction from the lecturer, he said... Um, you know, this course is on everyday spirituality, blah, blah, blah. If you, um, if you find yourself tired or needing a nap or whatever, it's, that's obviously your body talking to you. So feel free to just have a nap in the class, shut your eyes, just, just have a rest kind of thing. I was like, wow, that's amazing. There are three of us in the class. So it's not like, <laughs> it's not like it wouldn't have stood out. So... That was interesting. But let me just reiterate, or, or let me just go with where Heidi was going and where my lecture was going. Hey, if you find yourself at St. Luke's, and you're just feeling the eyes are just heavy, you've been watching Rugby World Cup late into the night or early hours or whatever, if you, if you need a sleep, just have a sleep. Just shut your eyes. There's more than three of us here. Um, the person next to you will think that you're praying and interceding, so uh, it's a win-win, so if you need to have a, have a nap, I mean, I could go around the ones of you that do that already, I, 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 could, uh, I could get each of you to stand up if you, if you want to, uh, all gentlemen, funny, I, I don't know what that is, but uh, all, all gentlemen, um, so I, I could point you out, but there's no need, maybe if you're on the front row, maybe don't lie out, that would be, uh, that would be appreciative, but uh, hey, let's get into it. We are supposed to be in the parables of Jesus. I got distracted, though, when we find ourselves in the armor of God. So it's Sunday school revisited. So we started last week, uh, and we'll carry on this week, and then one more week next Sunday. So if you've come in this morning and go, yay, we'll carry on with our series on the parables. It's like, yeah, I got distracted, and now we're doing the armor of God. So here we go. Uh, the Apostle Paul, he writes his letter to the church of Ephesus from prison. Uh, a, a, a basic concrete cell. You can Google like ancient Roman prison. You can Google image that and you'll get things very similar to that will come up. If you've ever watched a medieval movie or, or a historical movie set in just about anywhere, uh, the prisons, are, they're, they're pretty much the same. Concrete block cells with, a, with, a, with an iron door and chains and things like that. You're, you're imagining uh, exactly the right thing. Uh, Paul's chained to the wall in his cell you can imagine an overturned plate with a rat kind of scurrying back and forth on it, some dirty straw. Uh, you know, there's, there's prisoners in the other cells alongside and opposite, and they're yelling and smelling and doing their thing. Uh, maybe Paul's got one candle that he can see by. There's, there's Roman guards going up and down the corridor in the middle, stomping their spear butts on the ground every now and then, or, or whacking knuckles on, on cell doors telling people to be quiet. Uh, there's a disheveled jailer sitting at the table. It looks like he's had a few too many drinks and he's got a, you know, keys on his side kind of thing and there's slop buckets. And, you know, you, you're, you're kind of imagining pretty much exactly, exactly the situation that Paul finds himself in. Uh, he passes a letter to someone, maybe to a Roman guard, maybe to a jailer who's going to, for, for a coin, for a fee, is going to pass it on to someone on the outside. And this is this one of the prison epistles that, that Paul writes, the letter to the church of Ephesus. And he writes it in this kind of context. In his letter, he says, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against powers of this dark world and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. 
If you imagine yourself to be Paul in the prison cell, the evidence is entirely to the contrary of that. That doesn't seem like the logical conclusion to come to. We're wrestling not against flesh and blood. It's like, no, literally there's a Roman guard outside your cell. Like you're, you're chained to a prison. Like you can see him there with his spear and his armor and his shield and his sword and all of these kinds of things. Uh, Paul has a cut above his eye. His beard is kind of scraggly and, and, and dirty. He, he, he's, his, his latrine is a bucket in the corner. Uh, there's bruises on the back of his legs where a flat of a sword has whacked him and brought him to his knees kind of thing. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, principalities and powers. It's like, no, you, you, everything, everything about this situation says you're wrestling against flesh and blood. Everything about this situation says you're wrestling against the Roman Empire, against the, the sword and the sandals of Rome. Everything is saying that. And yet he writes to the contrary. At first glance, that the principalities and powers might be something outside of Rome. Well, nothing seems further from the truth. But Paul sees a little deeper. So Paul, Paul sees a little further. Paul sees beyond the obvious. Uh, I hinted at it last week. We'll, we'll go there again today. But one of the challenges that we have as Christ followers is to look beyond the obvious. Spiritual warfare is to look beyond the obvious, and we'll unpack what that might be. It's not what's obvious, but to look beyond the obvious. Uh, the Roman Empire is but a personification of these cosmos-grabbing powers. That's the Greek of these principalities and powers last week. The, the title of the sermon last week was Cosmos Grabbers. Principalities and powers are essentially cosmos grabbers. These forces that seek to grab a part of God's good creation and distort it or mess it or adjust it or, 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 or flip it upside down. So we've got these cosmos grabbers. Last Sunday we addressed whether are these ontological beings, are these actual beings with a name and you could find them somewhere out there and they're moving around and you could draw that one if you could see it and you could draw that one if you could see it. And they don't. We had a look at that last week and we, of course, left open the possibility that, yeah, there's, there's, there's things beyond what we can rationally figure out for sure. But I think sometimes we go too far that way too quickly and fail to realize that sometimes the principalities and powers are just ideologies that humans have brought into to such a degree that the ideologies become idols and false gods themselves, and we promote them to having sway and influence in our world. And you couldn't draw them. They're not a being or a figure or a something. They're, they're an idea that if only one or two people had, it wouldn't really take off that much. But when enough human beings buy into the same idea and it becomes an ideology and we start to live our lives according to that ideology and anything that challenges that ideology becomes the enemy, well, we, we promote this to become a principality in power, a force within the world that we live in. False gods with cosmic Influence. There's, there's room with both for both in a biblical narrative, but we're going to run more with the second today. Paul recognizes the Roman Empire as the personification of an antichrist ideology. What's the antichrist ideology of the Roman Empire? It's that peace and security is found via the sword. That salvation is found via 
the sword. That the way to have peace on earth is through violence. We've talked a lot of times, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Such a peaceful empire. Such a safe place to live in. Don't say anything about, bad about Caesar, and it's a beautiful place to live in. Say something bad, they crucify you and a couple of people from your family, and then you all learn not to say anything bad and just live in peace. It's this false ideology that peace comes via violence. It's not an, it need not be an actual being. The idea has been embraced by so many people for so long that this world that we live in is a world where where peace is often via the threat of violence. Nuclear deterrence. How do we have peace? We have peace via nuclear deterrence. We have such a nuclear arsenal that if you do something wrong, we will bomb you, and that just keeps peace everywhere. Well, that, That's an antichrist ideology. That's contrary to the way of the kingdom of God, where peace is found not via the threat of violence, but via co-suffering, sacrificial love, love of neighbor. Love of self, love of enemy even. That the love of Christ would be embedded within our hearts and lives, that we would extend that to the world around us such that peace is found via love. Uh, just in case you're wondering, when all is put back together in the age, of come, age to come and is fixed up and healed and mended, no more nuclear arsenal, no more deterrence via nuclear weapons. That's not a part of God's good future that he has for Contrast to the kingdom of God. Paul sees beyond the obvious. The obvious is the Roman guard. That's the obvious. Behind that, though, is a worldview that says peace comes via violence. Uh, early Jewish expectation was that a Messiah would rise up that would be like Gideon or Samson or Joshua. And they'd take over the Roman Empire and put a king of David back on the throne. And yet all that would be would be swapping the swords from one group to another group. And now they're the ones that are ruling and reigning. Christ didn't come to do that, came to expose the principalities of powers and undo them. Love of neighbor. Paul sees beyond the obvious, the false gospels, the fraudulent salvation narratives and promises that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. Imposter gods, imposter gods. And they don't have to be actual beings because we create enough imposter gods all by ourselves. Imposter gods that answer questions like, where did I come from? And who am I? And why am I here? And how should I live? Where am I going? What's gone wrong? What's the solution? Those kinds of questions. Uh, on YouTube, I watched coincidentally this week, uh, I'd seen it, on a, a friend on Facebook had said, hey, this is worth watching. And so we, I preached last week, and then Sunday afternoon, I lay down on the couch, and I put on part one of this four-part documentary. Well, it dovetailed incredibly nicely with the sermon just, that I just preached. Uh, it, it's a four-part documentary, 2002, uh, a little bit old, obviously, uh, but it's called The Century of Self, a story of politics, advertising, and psychoanalysis. And it, it really follows the rise of psychoanalysis in relation to marketing and advertising and creating consumer beings. So you can watch this four-part documentary which is almost a commentary on the modern creation of a principality and power that is marketing and advertising. Uh, in the early days of the, of the uh, what do you call it, the Industrial Revolution, the great fear was that we'd make too much stuff for people. So we, we want to be careful not to make too much stuff, because then you might not be able to 
to sell it. And businesses had this challenge, like they had production lines that would make the same thing. We, we shouldn't make too many of them because once you've sold them to the people that want them, you'll have all these leftover ones and you'll lose money. So they, they engaged, uh, actually it was Freud's nephew, they engaged Freud's nephew and he helped them to understand uh, that the, the idea was that we're kind of rational beings, but beneath the surface we have all of these uh, suppressed desires in regards to who we'd like to be and how we'd like to express ourselves and how we'd like to be in the world. And advertising and marketing became this category to, it was originally called propaganda, but after the war wasn't such a popular term. So he invented the term uh, public relations. Public relations. And you can try, this is the documentary. It's fascinating. It's like, oh, we can't use the word propaganda. Let's call it public relations. So they called it public relations, and these, these big businesses would hire public relations experts to do psychoanalysis on small groups to find out their needs and wants, and then to market products to them. Creates this consumer principality and power that influences... You, so you can watch that. There you go. That's just a little... I can't do it as well as that. There's a four-part document made in 2002. Well worth watching, and well worth watching all four because the final kind of one shows how politics has shifted to being less about uh, that which would be good for the public and our cities and things and that towards let's get a focus group, find out what their needs and wants are, and we'll have politicians that will promise to meet all their needs and wants, and politics turns into consumer-driven ideology as well. It's fascinating. They don't use the term principality and power. But if you're listening to my sermon about cosmos grabbers, you see how there's this good thing within... Politics is good. Material products are good. Creating and inventing is good. And all of these things and how it gets out of hand. Well worth the effort. Looks at things like, are you a somewhat rational being with all sorts of suppressed desires? Enslaved by cultural conditioning or religious censorship or conservative taboos? And what you need is freedom just to really express yourself and being become all you could be? Or are you a suffering individual caught up in the badness of the race rat? Every commitment and responsibility holding you back for the liberty of being your true self, buying the things that would show the world who you really are. Salvation will be found by the championing of individualism above all else. The other one is salvation will be found by casting off all restraints, you'll now be saved, you'll be truly free. And then we end up with the 60s, and if anyone remembers that, um, not as cool as the 80s, uh, but there you go. All right, enough people start buying into the same narrative, the same hope, the same promises. They take on a life of their own, become principalities and powers. Let's read from Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 10 to 17. Same passage as last week, because we're trying to get to the armor of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So we've looked at the nature of principalities and powers. 
Now, though, we've got devilish schemes, tricks and strategies. We have the flaming arrows of the evil one. How do we make sense of that? The car broke down. The cat got run over. The cough got worse. The business failed. The baby was up crying all night. The batch didn't sell. Well, is that the devil out to get you? Is that, is that attacks of the enemy that are just destroying your life and getting into your life and just messing things up and making things horrible and tricky for you? Are those the fiery darts? Do you need to get under some sort of covering or back into alignment or get that shield up to be covered in the blood and resist these fiery darts? Abs- no, no, I'm going to suggest no. I'm going to suggest no. Uh, I put the Greek up here, a more, a kind of a more literal, just word-for-word translation of the Greek. Uh, it doesn't read as well in the English. It doesn't flow, but it kind of says in the Greek here, verse, oh, I can't remember what verse it is, verse um, 16. To be able always, so you, you've got the shield of faith, to be able always, the arrows through the evil one, Burn in, burns inwardly extinguish. It's kind of what it's saying. To be able always, the arrows through the evil one, the implication is throwing or firing or aiming, the evil one, uh, the arrows of the evil one that burn inwardly extinguish. And it's interesting in the Greek that that, that word burn or fire is to burn inwardly. Paul recognizes that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, not against Roman soldiers not against the brute force of the Roman Empire, but against the idolatrous ideas of peace, security, salvation via the power of the sword or the might of an army, a regiment, Uh, not against uh, the imperial might of the Roman army to do mass crucifixions, but against these fiery darts that burn inwardly. They can be felt circumstantially, I guess, but the... What's going on is these, 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 these principalities of powers, they hit us with these fiery darts that burn inwardly. I've talked about consumerism, so obviously this is where we make it easy. Marketing, consumerism, salvation via buying all the things you need, having all the gadgets. It's a fiery dart that burns inwardly. It's a narrative, it's a story, it's a promise. There's something to be wrestled with internally. It can be experienced externally. Maybe you get into too much debt buying these things that you needed to find fulfillment and satisfaction in life. But the fiery dart is the narrative, the... You know how you have that little picture of the devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other from cartoons kind of thing? It's kind of like that, but it's it's not... Don't think ontological beings externally. Just think your own inner world wrestling. These, these, these false promises and this competition that's going on at an internal space that you're kind of processing. That's why you can't respond to violence with violence because it is simply to use the same force against it. You have to fight the ideology behind violence that says peace comes via the sword. You have to come to some new way of being and believing and understanding. Uh, we see this in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, you know, we think it was Peter picks up the sword, swings at the soldier and chops the ear off, but Jesus says, no, 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 we're not going to go down that path. And he prays for the soldier and he heals the ear. 
Uh, we see it earlier in the gospel narrative where Jesus talks about going to the cross and giving his life and being, and Peter's like, no, no, we're not going to let that happen. We got the boys, we'll gather around, we won't let that happen kind of thing. And, Peter, and Jesus rebu- uh, rebukes Peter and says, no, no, get behind me, Satan. You don't understand the will of God. You don't understand the will of the Father. So it's not, these guys are wanting to take up swords to fight the Roman Empire, but Jesus is like, no, 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 you can't fight violence with violence. It's, it's, there's, there's principalities and powers. There's ideologies. We have to offer a whole different narrative, a whole different story, a whole different way of thinking. There's a ridiculousness to the armor of God if it is to fight the Roman Empire. They're going to come at you with a sword. You've got the sword of the Spirit. Yay! You know, it's a little bit like David and, and David and Goliath. Like, Goliath comes at David with with armor and shield and sword and this huge spear and this and then and then but David goes no 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 and David takes up a, a, a sling and a few stones there's a ridiculousness there that is but if you, if you if you allow the ark of scripture to move forward so you've got in the old testament you've got eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth because you know somebody killed my son so I'm going to wipe out your village and God says no that's not good eye for an eye tooth for a tooth someone kills your son you kill their son it's like horrific to us. But that's a forward movement in terms of how humans are engaging with each other. But it moves all the way forward to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, you've heard an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I actually say unto you, no, no, turn the other cheek, absorb the offense. Well, that's just radical. So you've kind of got this movement as well. Here you've got Goliath and no, no, we're going to take on Goliath with a stone and a sling. That's ridiculous. But you see this further movement forward. By the time you get to Ephesians, we're fighting the Roman Empire with peace and righteousness and, and the helmet of salvation. It's like, this is ludicrous. This is like, no, at least it should be a dagger. You see that, no, no, it's because we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. We'll unpack a little bit the armor of God soon. We don't even get a sling now in the New Testament, it's salvation, helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, sandals of peace, shield of faith. Pathetic ways to resist the fiery darts of the enemy if they are literal, actual things that hit you in the head. But if they are things that burn inwardly, then suddenly, no, the truth, gospel of truth, belt of righteousness. Helmet of salvation. Oh, these are things that you can resist these fiery darts that burn inwardly. Has God indeed said that you shall not eat the tree of the garden? This is the serpent to Eve. It's a fiery dart that's burning inwardly. Oh, has God really said that? No, no, you'll just become like God, knowing good and evil kind of thing. Oh, if you really are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Do something impressive. Leap off the temple and angels will... No, this, this is this... This is with these fiery darts that are burning inwardly. Eve doesn't resist. Christ says, no, 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 don't test the Lord your God. No, 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 no. You live not by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's not all insidious. The fiery darts that burn within usually aren't, kill your wife, bury her in the backyard, then you'll truly be free. We're not normally wrestling with that kind of thing. Um, you do the payroll this week, transfer all of the company's payroll into your account and you'll know freedom and love and joy and life. It's like, 
the killing of wives and the burying in the backyard and the stealing of payroll have happened in human history. But mostly that's not, that's not the fiery darts that are taking us off track or messing our worlds up. Or If they are, please come talk to me afterwards and we'll, we'll get some people to help you. You know, sail to the Maldives. Pick up your keyboard and knock your boss in the head with it and quit your job. It's, it's way more subtle than that. And uh, I'm going to read Timothy's little account of this. Uh, not the apostle, not Timothy in the Bible, but Timothy Gumbus writes this. Got an email that said, everything you need to look good on, the, on and off the beach this summer. He says, like you, I've received thousands of these emails. And like you, I routinely delete them. This time, however, I decided to open it. When I did, I was strangely compelled to wander through the latest summer offerings, even though I already have everything I need for my time on and off the beach. I found myself thinking about how my current swimsuit is not nearly as cool as these newly available ones. Thanks to the miracle of modern technology, I can find the perfect swimsuit that will not only will make me look good on the beach this summer, but will also become my ticket to participating in the bliss that these models are obviously enjoying. They are beautiful, lean and tan. They probably have fascinating conversations in the evenings as they sip cocktails with cool names and watch the sunset on the beach. And it is because of their swimsuits I am made to feel that my life is fairly boring and mundane, filled with the average sorts of things that happen to average people. But if I lay out $49.99, I can have this sort of life, one filled with exciting moments of looking good on and off the beach this summer. Reflect for a moment on what this simple incident of advertising has done to my imagination, my large-scale vision of life. What is so insidious is that this incident of advertising has not only stirred up within me a strong lust for better swimsuit, it has served to shape my vision of all of reality. It molds my thinking and feeling about myself and my place in the world. It shapes how I conceive of others and my relationship to them and my notion of the big story that is up and running in the world, the grand narrative that shapes and gives meaning to all of reality. Because I've let the subtle conviction sink into my heart that I need to spend more time thinking about what I need to look good on and off the beach this summer, I have fallen victim to thinking about my identity and value as one who must cultivate the admiration of others. The fundamental question who am I and what gives me value now has the answer. I am a person whose value is determined to the extent that people notice how good I look on and off the beach. So if people do not notice how good I look, I will consider myself as failing to play my role correctly. Leading to some sense of loss of personal value. What is worse if people do notice that I look stunning in my new swimwear, I will have the notion reinforced to me that I am nothing more than one who looks good on and off the beach. I will cease having value in the world when I run out of money to buy more stuff or when people stop noticing my wardrobe and my looks. We don't 
consciously think about it like that. We don't look at the ad and go, oh, here I am being drawn into a narrative where I'm getting my value, blah, 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 like he's unpacked in the story. That all, that all just happens in a second. That just all happens in a moment. But it happens here and it happens there and it happens there and it happens on that billboard and on that ad on social media and that ad on television that it becomes the water that we swim in. And we don't realize that it's a principality and power. It's a narrative that's offering salvation and offering fulfillment and offering satisfaction. All we need to do is sacrifice this amount of money or buy it now and pay later for it. And you will, we don't consciously think it all through, but it happens in a, in a second, in a moment. It's not the Harry Potter books that we need to worry about, the school of magic and every flavor beans and mythical creatures. It's the circulars that arrive in our letterboxes, the advertising circulars. True fact, you can tweet that, promise you. The, the, the church in the oh, 2000s, 2000s, oh, Harry Potter this, Harry Potter that. It's like, honestly, it's, don't worry about Harry Potter. Worry about the circulars that show up in your letterbox, that offer you this special and look like this, and you can get this. One of my kids is... What read Harry Potter, I don't know how many times he's, he's, he thinks he's read it 17 times, but I don't think he has. He's never once sat me down and said, Dad, how could I learn a real spell that really, like, I, I want to turn my teacher into a frog. How could I do that? And never once, never once. He watched about half an hour of TikTok videos. Dad, how could I make a TikTok video that goes viral like all these other TikTok videos, so that I get millions of likes and comments. Don't worry about Harry Potter. Worry about TikTok. Status, likes, shares. Worry about the, the flyers in your letterbox that offer you promises of salvation and this and that and the other thing. Financially, if you got to such and such a place... You'll never have any concerns or stresses in life. You'll be able to rest easy and relax. That's a fiery dart. That's a fiery dart that burns with him. If you were married to him rather than him, you'd be so much more happier and fulfilled in life. That's a fiery dart. That's a fiery dart that burns with him. You've worked hard to get to where you are today. You have a right to demand more of those around you and to speak of them as you wish. You're at the top of the ladder. You've worked hard to get there, and these people below you, they are not pulling their weight. You, you can speak to them however you wish. They need, a hear, they, need, they need an earful. You remember when you got an earful and it helped you to get to the top. Now they need an earful. That's a fiery dart that burns within. It's dehumanizing. That's way more likely going to take you off track than Harry Potter. Like, I, honestly. You've had, a hard, you've had it hard from day number one. The advantage that others have had versus you, you should be angry and frustrated and bitter. That's a fiery dart that burns within. It'll derail your life. It'll, it'll take you off course. Don't repress, fully express, individualize, look out for you and no one else. No one is looking out for you. Lift your hands in high and worship on Sunday, but be cutthroat in business during the week. Those are, those are fiery darts that, that burn within, that will derail your life. Fiery darts that prompt behavior that as a collective empowers false gods, creates systematic cultures that are dehumanizing and 
disfigured. James says, don't show favor to uh, wealthy people. If you, if you know someone that comes into your church, they're new and they're wealthy, don't show them favoritism. Don't give them special seats. Don't, don't, don't do that. He says, that's like, that's like the sin of adultery and murder. It's like, whoa, back it up a little, James. How can showing favoritism be like the sin of adultery and murder? Those are two of the really bad ones. And favoritism is one of the, hang on, I haven't even read that in the Ten Commandments. I don't even think that's one of them. Well, to show favoritism to somebody that's wealthy, essentially in this church context, is to lust after something that is not your own. Here's the answer to this problem or this issue. It's to lust after. It's to covet something that is not your own. That's why it's like adultery. How's it like murder? Well, it's dehumanizing. It's a dehumanizing, it's to treat people less. It's to devalue somebody. Don't, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't live like that. Another way of looking at it, because you can broaden it out to be way beyond the church context. Essentially, it's saying, in life, as you navigate life and you engage with other humans, remember, humans aren't utilitarian, uh, utilitarian assets. Humans aren't human resource. It might be better to treat them as human resource with HR policies than what you could, but nevertheless, it's still... That's a misunderstanding of what a human is. A human is not a human resource. Oh, I should get to know that person more. They were, they're a great human resource that would add value to my life. It's like, no, that's dehumanizing. That's exactly the same as favoritism, that is adultery, that is as of murder. Don't treat people like that. That's a fiery dark burning within. You know, you meet three new people at a party. Two of them... I don't think they can really help my life, but that third one, I reckon I, I should get, we should do a coffee on Wednesday because, no, it's a dehumanizing way of treating people. Give honor, give dignity, and give worth and value to all people. In fact, the Bible teaches give special honor to the, the lost, the last, the least, actually. It just, it just flips it up. These are the kind of fiery darts. These are the principalities and powers, the ideas that fellow humans are a resource that I can leverage. That, that's going to derail you. Our world is not a neutral setting. Principalities and powers assault our imaginations to manipulate us into playing the role not of image bearers, but of idolatrous worshippers uh, in destructive dramas. They seek to determine the contours of our lives, how we plan our futures, how we go about making daily decisions, pursue career paths, and develop relationships. They work through ideologies and cultural patterns and combine our sinful impulses, fleshly desires, and corrupt social practices to enslave us. Because we inhabit such a highly contested space, it is imperative that we become people of discernment. If you are, Walter Wink has a book on the powers from a trilogy, but one of the books is Naming the Powers. One of the roles of us as Christ followers is to be those that can name the powers, those that can call something for what it actually is. And I think we misname the powers where we get scared about Harry Potter, but we are relaxed about the flyers that come in our letterbox advertising 20% off and this and the other things. That You actually have to name the powers to correctly. Uh, up on the screen, 
I've got the names of some of the powers from ancient times. We don't use the names anymore. The ancients were more honest than us. We, 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 don't, we don't have, uh, who I got, Aphrodite. We don't have Aphrodite anymore. We don't name, it's George Clooney and Pamela Anderson. That's not Aphrodite. Well, what was Aphrodite? Aphrodite was the god of lust and sex and these kinds of things. We don't, we don't name, we don't, have, we don't do that anymore. We don't have a temple to that. Oh, we do. We have marketing and advertising and all of this kind of celebrity culture that we get caught up in. So those are ancient names, but with new graphics. Each is worshipped. All of those things are worshipped. All of those things promise salvation to some extent or another. Those things represent the devilish schemes and fiery darts that burn inwardly. Because they're all false gods, false idols that offer false promises. We've got to be discerning here, attentive, not asleep. Oh, go back one. Dionysus is the god of festivities and wine. The god of uh, cutting loose. Letting your hair down kind of thing. Well, we, don't ha- we don't have a temple to Dionysus now. but I mean, I, we could say we've got nightclubs, but I, I'm not wanting to make it that literal. It's the, it's the sense. Vulcan is the god of trade and commerce and these kinds of things. We don't, we don't, none of us worship Vulcan anymore. None of us worship Vulcan anymore. You ever done 80 hours at the office, you know, trying to get this business thing along the line, missed your kid's eighth birthday or whatever it might be kind of thing? Uh, maybe we do worship Vulcan still. We just don't, don't realize we worship Vulcan. We have other names. Uh, Saturn's the god of time. Oh, we don't worship time anymore. It's like, what? Time's the most sacred thing that we guard. We'd help people if it wasn't for the time that it takes up, you know. I'm all for helping people, except often it's in the evenings, and that's when I watch TV and like to stay at home. Here's a test. What's promised, but what must you sacrifice? What is promised, but what must you sacrifice? Uh, We talked about phones last week, so let's say the latest iPhone. Well, the lightest iPhone will actually organize yourself in such a way that you are a lot freer to love people. Those are the kind of narratives we tell ourselves, that's why we need it. Those are the false promises. God has not said you'll really die. You're no good and evil. The iPhone, you've got the iPhone 13. It's rubbish. If you had the 14, you'd follow Jesus so much more faithfully. It's like, no. We sacrifice time or money or whatever kind of thing, and the, the, the promise is A, B, and C. False gods promise A, B, and C. All you have to do is sacrifice this, that, or the other thing. The true gospel doesn't offer you A, B, or C. The true gospel offers you fullness of life. The full gospel doesn't even offer you just one of the many good things. It offers you fullness of life in Christ Jesus. What do you have to sacrifice? Oh, no, no, it's the other way around. In the real gospel, in the true gospel, God sent his son as the sacrifice to give his life Not to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. The promise is everything, but the sacrifice has been made by God. 
false ideologies, they'll promise you this, that, and the other thing. You just have to work out what you're willing to say. It's all back around the other way. All right, the armor of God then, properly. Next Sunday, let's stand to our feet and we'll uh, close at the table of the Lord.